Chris Blattman is the Romilly E. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the University of Chicago's Pearson Institute and Harris Public Policy Institute. He's an economist and political scientist who studies poverty, violence, and crime in developing countries. He's designed and evaluated strategies for tackling poverty, including cash transfers to the poorest. Much of his work is with the victims and perpetrators of crime and violence, testing the link between poverty and violence. His recent work looks at other sources and solutions to violence. These solutions range from behavioral therapy to social norm change and local level state building. He's worked mainly in Colombia, Liberia, Uganda, Ethiopia, and Chicago Southside. Dr. Blattman was previously faculty at Columbia and Yale universities and holds a PhD in economics from UC Berkeley and a master's in public administration and international development from the Harvard Kennedy School. His latest book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Past to Peace, is available for pre-order now. Today we talked about sampling in life, Colombian gangs, and the perpetuation of peace. Hope you enjoy. Well, I guess first of all, before we get into anything, I should say congrats on the on the new book. I'm excited to get my hands on it in the spring. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm eager to get my hands on one myself. So <laughs> early next year. Gotcha, gotcha. Excited for it. So, you know, before before this great like stint in academia, you were you were a business consultant and an accountant, if I remember <laughs> correctly. But you still point to rock climbing instructor and music store salesman as being the best two jobs you've ever mm -hmm. had, which is, which is quite the deviation. So to kick things off, I'm, I'm curious how you ended up doing what you do now. I came from a family where all, everybody worked in business and banking and they were all sort of like everybody, like my dad and my grandfather and my uncle, they were all these, like, didn't go to college, started in the mail room, ended up as like senior positions in banks and things in Canada. And so, so that was just sort of the model, I guess, you know, we all sort of follow in certain footsteps sure and and they seemed to like what they did and so i started taking that route and then when uh, you know when it was time to go to university i didn't you know i figured i'd probably in, in canada they have these undergraduates you can do a b commerce like a bachelor's in commerce and bachelor's in accounting and things like which you don't have here and so i just i looked into these programs and i stumbled into one and found myself doing that but just didn't really like it and particularly hated the accounting which is where i started it's just not a good fit for me personally and and then i i guess just in my around the mid-college crisis is like a good description i think i uh realized i didn't like I, I i was able to realize i didn't like it because the school i went to in canada had a cooperative program where you do your four-year degree over five years and you'd spend four to six months a year working on internships and it was very structured and, and, and you get channeled into great internships, but it meant it, I, I had the benefit of having like a year or two work experience and learning what I didn't like before I graduated college. And so in my third or fourth year, I was able to pivot. And I, I was taking some economics and some political science classes, which were more, I don't know, historical. And they weren't like the mathy ones necessarily. They were the ones about big ideas. And that just captured my interest. And, 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 and I, I decided I wanted to work on social issues and I grew attractive in theory to international issues because they seemed neglected at the time and they were, but I didn't know how to get from here to there. And so I, I switched my major, finished with an economics degree, and then I went into business and then I started looking for opportunities to do international work. And, and the only path I could see was trying to go and get a degree 
a master's degree in international development. And so I, that's what I did. I applied into uh, some international development master's degrees and I got into one at the Harvard Kennedy School. And then that led to a bunch of things, but that was basically it. Just sort of tried to take, get the work experience I could and then use a master's degree to like pivot. And here we are, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Sounds like the mid-college crisis has been pretty beneficial for, for the both of us. I guess I'll, we'll see how I turn out. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, some people, I mean, everybody, some people do it. You have to try a few careers. Some people stumble upon their first career right away. Mm. And, and otherwise, I think you have to think of it as sampling. So you try something during school, you try something after. And yeah, I guess I just learned very quickly that if it didn't feel like the right fit, it probably Move wasn't on. the right fit. Right. Yeah. You know, I think there was a part of me that's always been a bit jealous of people, for example, going into medicine and things like that, where they like, they know since they're like four years old, you know what I mean? But I, I definitely agree. I think it's sort of a bandwidth issue, right? Like it's just so much time allotted to you and you have to take the time to try as many things as you can to sort of figure it out from there. Yeah. I think it's led to like a philosophy where I just try to sample things in general. So I'll walk out of a movie halfway through. I'll leave a play after act one. Wow. I will, before I met my wife, I, if I didn't think a relationship was going anywhere, I'd ended after like three months. <laughs> and like I would just always, and, and so, and and I think whenever, or and with careers, like I would try in different careers. And if I they didn't feel like the right fit after a few months or a year, I would leave them. And so it was hard to do the first time, but then I sort of just fell into it. And I, and I think, and then ultimately I would find something I loved and I stuck with it. And that was true with marriage and that was true with career. And so, yeah, I, I, and it's true with plays. So I, I, it's a good, I think it's a good strategy. Wow. I, I probably need to take that into a, into more account. I like the strategy you've, you've been employing there, you know, to shift gears for a second. One thing that I think has really piqued uh, my interest is some of your recent work in Medellin, in Colombia, because I'm actually half Colombian myself, and I have okay. some family who've lived there. All that aside, so from from what I understand, you spent time there basically studying why we fight through the lens of street gangs in the area. Really interesting work. I'm curious how the project came up to begin with. Why Medellin? Well, it was kind of, I mean, I, I worked on the subject of like armed groups and armed recruitment, mostly in the context of civil conflicts and mostly in Africa. And then around five or six years ago, I was coming up for tenure. I was really focusing on a few projects and not starting anything new. And so by the time that happened, I just had, I didn't have quite a, an empty desk, but I had, a, I had the I, very consciously like created the room to like do something new. And I also follow this pattern where I tend to like work in a place for five or six years. And then I keep working there a little bit, but then I move somewhere else. So I worked in Uganda for five or six years and I worked in Liberia for five or six years. And then I was thinking, okay, now it's time to go somewhere new. And honestly, I, at that point I had small kids and I said, I have to find a violent country where I can bring my family. And so that meant like you either, it was basically, so I narrowed it down to Kenya, Indonesia, and Colombia. And I went, I spent a couple weeks in Kenya and, you know, was having struggle, struggling to like come up with leads that, you know, pull threads and they didn't go anywhere. I started a project in Indonesia with some colleagues, didn't have a chance to go because I went to Colombia. We just went for a month as a family worked at the university, toured around and did some tourism, but also like developed some things. And then it just spun into 
initially it's planning to work with the police in, in Bogota, which I knew from the outset wasn't going to be very interesting, but it was like a good way just to get going. And I figured one thing would lead to another. And, and the short story is that a graduate student I met there became a friend. I started advising him. He's a Colombian. He's from Medellin. And about a year in, he said, why don't, why don't here's a conference in Medellin. Why don't you come to the conference, but show up a week ahead of time and we'll like case the joint, right? I'm from there. I used to work in the government. There's a lot of gangs, but we don't know much about them. You know, someone who he'd worked in the government, worked on crime in the city for years, really he, like everyone else, a really rudimentary understanding of like how these gangs are organized. And so we went, we spent a week just talking to people. And it sort of became clear that there's, here's a city with 350 really well-organized criminal groups, at least like hundreds. And there was just all this variety. And there was this immense opportunity to, we had this access. We just, people would talk to us. It just was clear that this, it was, so we just thought, how can we not try to study this? We didn't know how. It took us like a year or two to figure out how to collect data, how to get inroads into these groups, how to qualitatively figure out what was going on. But we just decided to make this big investment. And it's been, yeah, just super fascinating. How is it interacting with people in areas like, you know, Medellin or in Colombia as something of an outsider? I can imagine it's tough sort of getting key players to cooperate. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, you always have to have like a local collaborator of some kind. So, I mean, in in Colombia, I have this peer, this other academic who, and then we also have field staff who are from there. One of our, you know, eventually one of our main research assistants is a former, basically mafia member who had reformed and worked for the city government. And he would just, we met him. He was just a very gifted, he just turned out to be a very gifted qualitative researcher. And so he works for us full time now. And so you need that hook in, in Uganda, that kind of capacity was never there, especially in the North where the war was going on, where I worked. And so, but we always had, we'd always develop one or two research assistants who basically would become just our right-hand men or women and just help us who were just really, really, really good. And, and many of them went on to become successful researchers afterwards. So you need somebody who can connect you. But then, you know, it's funny because you're an outsider, it's sort of people will feel safer talking to you. Like it's <clears throat> when I'm in Chicago doing some of the similar stuff, like I'm deeply enmeshed in the politics of it. Like I'm, there's no way I'm not an outsider. Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm on one side, whether I like it or not, like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of viewed with some suspicion. I'm kind of by my nature partisan. There, I'm just this like people. I have like this curiosity, and it's also really safe in some ways to speak to me because who do I know, right? I'm just going to talk to a whole bunch of people in another country, or I'm going to write some article for a bunch of academics. So, so it's difficult. But once you get in, people, and then frankly, the the point is, you just have to go and talk. People are sort of interested to talk about their work or talk about their lives. And so ran some random person shows up and starts asking penetrating questions about you. And it's just fascinating what you have to say. And most people are quite happy with that. You know, you mentioned doing some work in Chicago and, you know, for better or for worse, it's, it's a, probably a, a good place to be for the type of work that you're doing. What are some analogs that you found between, you know, the South side of Chicago where we're both based out of and in a place like Medellin? Yeah, it's a good question. So what, one thing that's different here that's a big advantage in Chicago is there's these 
generations of people who grew up in gangs and, and, and criminal organizations went to prison and part of, and then got out older and wiser, often reformed, not all of them, but a, a sizable number. And then a, they want to do something in their community. B often they they don't have a lot of legitimate job options, you know, because if you killed somebody 20 years ago and then you served 20 years and you're a gang member, like what, who's going to hire you? And so they they do these, this thing that's called outreach, street outreach. And they are, and they, their, their job is basically to know what's going on in the neighborhood, know who's doing what, step in to stop violence or connect people to services. They're sort of, they become like a, an arm through which other organizations can provide like social services, legal services. And that's, that doesn't exist in Medellin. We had to kind of create that. And so it's interesting to me why that's just the, but to me, that's like the bedrock of a lot of social services and, and outreach in, 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 in Chicago, and it doesn't exist in Medellin. So we've had to create it. And I think that's interesting. I don't know where it's sort of this question, like where are all the 50 year olds? Hmm. Because these, like Chicago, these gangs have been around for decades, and and we haven't quite figured that out. I, I think a lot of them just get out and become sort of quasi legitimate businessmen, and but I don't know. And a lot of them die, and maybe just a lot of them spend their lives in prison. The but that's sort of the opposite of what you ask, because it's a distinction. You know, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's similar in the sense that every neighborhood has a a youth gang but it's just so much more structured there. It's much more hierarchical. It's much more ordered. And I think that's partly idiosyncratic. Just Medellin is one of the more ordered and hierarchical and places in terms of organized crime. I think it's just systematically the, 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 the law enforcement strategy in the United States and particularly in Chicago has just been cut off the head, cut off the head, cut off the head, cut off the head. And so I think what you have on this in the south and west side therefore is just a lot of young leaderless groups whereas that that wasn't that was not done as intensively or as effectively in medellin and or and when it was when you're put in prison you can still run your empire from prison it's very straightforward whereas that's not true here and so so that just has advantages and disadvantage and the advantage is that like organized crime is organized. And so there's, you know, at least in the case of Medellin, it's less violent than Chicago. And they provide services to citizens. And they have a they enjoy a degree of legitimacy. And that's good in the sense that it's more peaceful and and people have another person to turn to to solve problems. And it's bad in that for the obvious reason that here's this not elected, relatively unequal group of of, of ruffians who and 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 guys who are selling drugs and, 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 and exerting coercion and controlling neighborhoods. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, you know, my, I think one of my main takeaways from that research in Medellin in particular was it, it sort of gave me a different viewpoint of, of peace. I think altogether, we have this super idealistic view. I mean, it seems of, of getting along generally, but you seem to break it down more clinically into just this tipping of incentives. And I know we're getting more into the realm of your book here. So, um, to whatever extent you want to answer, but what's, what's maybe a more practical example of that, that people might be able to relate to. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, getting along is a great 
and harmony and integration mm-hmm. are terrific objectives. And if you can achieve that, it's like protective insulation against conflict. But you don't need that for peace. I mean, uh, one example, just the Cold War, right? Americans and the Russians, the USSR generally just, they, they didn't erupt into nuclear warfare. Thank goodness. They never liked one another. There was just this sort of, they just loathed one another in peace. And there was skirmishing and fights along the margins. And so if you were in Vietnam or Central America, you felt like it doesn't feel very peaceful. But for given the size of the potential conflict, that it was reasonably peaceful. And that kind of tense standoff. And you're, sort of, you're starting to see that with China and the U.S., I think, as well. It's unlikely that they will go to war. It's possible for various reasons, but it just doesn't make sense because it's, it's just too, it would be too, too disastrous. And so that's true for everybody. And it's more true when you're both nuclear armed. Mm. Is that sort of a common theme when you're looking at something like the future of conflict or the future of violence or war that, you know, maybe the likelihood of anything large happening just sort of decreases because the stakes are so much higher? Is that? Generally, um, I mean, it's, it, it can be complicated. I mean, as a general rule, just... 99 times out of 100 or 999 times out of a thousand two enemies don't go to fight and so they don't go to war and that's true for villages and that's true for ethnic groups and it's true for religious sects and it's true for political factions within a country it's true for countries so so and then there is yeah as the costs as the cost of conflict rises, that's a big disincentive. I guess what can, it, it's not quite so simple as to say the more costlier is war, the less likely it is to happen just because, you know, there, there's other complexity there. You know, if if China, imagine a world where, you know, take China and the US or take any two enemies, but suppose one realize there's this huge pie, right? Which is the global order and, and, and economy and, and if you have sort of a window of opportunity where you could knock out your enemy and grab the whole thing, then then the size of the pie and is, is sudden and, and and the fact that you know wars is potentially that's going to actually make war very likely. And that's people people use that window of opportunity story to sort of explain most world wars. So World War One, World War Two, basically. There's lots of factors that go into this, but basically one side had a window of opportunity to just get the whole thing. And whether that was a reasonable belief of theirs or self-delusion, that was like the fundamental motive between behind the wars is, is one story. And that kind of what you'd call maybe dynamic incentive is, isn't necessarily affected by this logic I mentioned. So. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, I, I want to touch quickly on your work sort of looking at the perpetuation of poverty or violence, I think more specifically some of the work that you did in Liberia, just starting more generally, how much of getting out of sort of a cycle of poverty or a cycle of violence, how much of that, if at all, is education and how much of that is having experienced it firsthand? Well, I mean, if you're talking about violence, the the idea that like a lot of people think that poverty you know lead to violence lack of education leads to violence it's generally not quite true the fact is is like two very poor people two very poor villages two very, very poor nations their war is still very painful for them and so they still have an incentive to find a deal and so once again 99 times out of 100 
they're they're not going to fight. And so if you shrink the pie people are fighting over, it doesn't necessarily make them any more or less likely to just find deals is, is one thing. That said, and, and, and sort of the other thing I'll say is take something like Chicago, like what you'll you'll hear mayors say things like, well, we need to provide jobs to reduce the violence. Just like in this poor country context, you say, well, we have to develop the economy, there has to be trade, there has to be jobs to reduce the conflict. I I just don't think that's true for a couple of reasons. One is just that, well, two things. One is just this point I've already made, which is that there is already incentive to find a deal. And so providing people jobs or not doesn't necessarily change those basic incentives. Something was interfering with that. And the absence of jobs is probably not the thing that was interfering with peace. So providing them is not the solution. They might be good for other reasons. I've done a lot of my work in my career on job creation, but but I don't think it's what, what it takes. The other reason is like, it's totally like, at the end of the day, the people who are making a decision whether or not to go to war between the two groups or shoot on the streets of Chicago is a very small number of people. Right. So there's a, in a country, there's just a, I don't know, a few dozen generals and politicians and some soldiers and things. And in Chicago, there's maybe, you know, a few thousand guys who are members of, of, of mobs and cliques and gangs and things who, who, who have the opportunity, right. To, so, and then there's a million people in these high violent neighborhoods. Right. So even if jobs were the solution, if I suddenly provide jobs in these two poor countries, or I suddenly provide jobs on the south side of Chicago, what are the chances that I'm even going to like hit the people who are actually decisive in the violence, right? And so the, the, the strategy for countering violence is almost always target, 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 target. Find this very small number of people who actually have the capacity to exercise violence and intervene with them and figure out why they're being violent and then tailor what you're doing to the reason they're being violent. And, and that most public policy just fails that very basic test. You know, it's, it's an interesting way of putting it because I've read that a lot of, or something that you speak quite a bit about is just direct cash incentives is sort of a cost effective way to help things. It seems like, you know, general governance is almost like a, sort of spray and pray type mentality. Whereas, you know, if you can get a little bit more intentional or accurate with with the aid you're trying to provide, it might work out a bit better. Is that sort of a nice way of characterizing it? Well, I think for violence, that's true. I mean, with something like cash, which was this other thing I've worked, I mean, in some ways that turned, that there we weren't so much trying to target violence as we were to try to target poverty. You know, that, that actually turned out to be a little bit wrong. You know, you can... Rather, you know, listen, if you give people, if you give someone who's poor and doesn't have enough to eat cash, they will eat more. That's good. Right? That's why we, so as a humanitarian thing, it generally, and people spend it well. We learned, we, you know, we tried giving cash to the last people on the planet you'd want to give cash to. And even they spent it well. So, so, so people are going to go and buy food and shelter. And so that's good. We should do that all the time. But there was an idea that cash transfers could set people on a on a new trajectory right out of poverty and that that was that was just based that's based on a different that was based on the idea that there was something holding them back there were they didn't have access to credit it was hard for them to save they had good ideas but they couldn't get they couldn't surmount these challenges and cash would get them past that and then they'd fly 
And that just turns out not to have been true. Gotcha. It, it helps them temporarily. But then it wasn't that big a barrier and, and everybody else catches up is, is the emerging evidence. You know, it's too soon to say, but that's, that's what I would say is the case. Maybe the only group that's not true for is the very, 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 very poor. And then they catapult ahead to nearly being very poor in a sustained way, which is a big, you know, that's a victory. You know, you mentioned in some of your research, I think it's Liberia, that it costs, I think it was three or four times as much to do something there as it did in, in somewhere like rural Kenya. Mm-hmm. So anything like transport or fuel or the cost structure they have there. How do external forces or to what extent do external forces like that play a role, do you think? I mean, you can kind of think like different economies have really different cost structures, right? That come from how easy is it to grow food and how is it to transport? How is it to communicate? And and the more all of these things build up, the harder it's just to do anything, right? So it's harder for me to run a research project, which just means that unless I have to be, unless I really want to study something that I need to be in, say, potentially violent, unstable place, or really want to work with ex-combatants, it doesn't really make sense for me to work in Liberia. Likewise, if I were just running a business, every single person who wants to start a business locally or internationally just has to contend with the fact that it's just much costlier to work there. And therefore, dozens and dozen millions of investments that would make sense in one place just don't make sense in Liberia. So it just stifles all economic activity. All these things that are just marginally profitable in one place are unprofitable in Liberia. And, but to a huge degree, because everything, and, and everything just is difficult. And so if I'm a big business, you know, if let's say I'm an agribusiness, I'm going to, I'm going to just start, try, try making farms and I'll grow tea for export in Kenya, not in Liberia. But even if I'm just a, a little farmer, with a plot of land, am I going to like start a third plot or not? And so every decision, every margin, it just reduces investment. So it reduces output and it just makes life hard. And some of those, yeah. And, and some of those are just because whatever, all the infrastructure and education, everything was wiped out by years of neglect and war as part of it. And so hopefully that'll crawl back with like, external and internal public investment, but it'll be a long time. I think this is probably a, a cool way to tie it in. But you know, the if we're talking about the Chicago or like purely economic way of thinking, we're, we're sort of seeing people as being like generally, you know, rational decision makers. Mm-hmm. You know, you see a guy like Thaler who might argue otherwise and say, no, we're all actually kind of nuts. But what, what's your experience or, or thinking on people's rationality on their own self-interest when you're dealing with something like poverty or like violence? I mean, I think to a first to first approximation, just the idea that people and groups are kind of calculating and self-interested is like a good starting point. If you dispense with that, then you'll probably get things wrong. And then I think the, and then of course we're not all rational in every decision, or I guess there are specific areas where we maybe depart from that systematically. And so it's, I think, I think like the failures of the world are just successful because they've they focus on the kinds of decisions that get waylaid by our the psychology of individuals or the psychology of groups. And so 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 it's more like you have to find the pockets of of things where we get really waylaid and, and then try to think about how that gets fixed. So so for example, in Liberia, there was this whole the average person got 
the average the, the average young person, even the, the average relatively poor person, even the average person who'd been affected by the war, even been an ex-combatant, was calculating and everything functioned well enough that they reintegrated normally into life and they got kind of what they needed. They had the basic social skills and incentives to function. And then there was this small margin of society that just had missed out on some really basic skills, social skills, personal skills, and around just managing conflict, managing their lives. And so they were the, the destitute and the violent and the criminal like this really margin of society. And so we sort of showed that actually you can go and you can remedially teach these people some of these skills. And in using a tool of behavior change called cognitive behavior therapy, and that can actually help a good chunk of them really turn their lives around. And so they were stuck in a rut where they just didn't realize what they were capable of. And they didn't even know what they were missing. They didn't even know that it was possible for them to change their ways. So they were calculating, but, but they, in some sense, they'd, they weren't aware of what was what was possible for themselves and how to get there. And so we just sort of illuminated that way. But it, but it, but the important thing to remember is that 99% of people didn't necessarily need that. It was just this fringe. And so so for me, the trick is just finding these really important margins where where people get totally waylaid by these behavioral issues. And then you and that's a great place for public policy intervention. Good. I appreciate the time, really. Sure. Awesome. Okay. Cheers. Have a good one. All right. Bye.